plastic pollution, deforestation, global warming. Sometimes it feels like there's just nothing we can do as individuals about our environmental crisis. But at the Oath Project, we believe that small acts when done collectively can create massive impacts. That's why we created this podcast, to share the stories of the individuals who are doing just that, one act at a time to help the earth. And hey, who knows, maybe after this episode, you'll be inspired to, as we call it, hashtag take the oath and commit to doing just one act at a time. Now on with the episode. Hello, and welcome back to One Act at a Time, Stories of Change. I'm your host, Cheryl. The work we do through our podcast and our organization, The Oath Project, is based out of Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and traditional lands of the Mi'kmaq people. And our work extends well beyond this geography, so we acknowledge and appreciate all of the many First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all Indigenous people whose footsteps have marked these lands for millennia. Our theme this month is nature education, and to help guide the conversation, I'm happy to have my co-host Alex with me today, a long-standing board member with the Oath Project. Hi, Alex. Hello, everyone. Adding to the conversation today is our guest, Cyrielle Noel, program specialist at OceanWise and founder of Odesite. Cyrielle, we're happy to talk with you today. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are as a human, your professional story, all of that good stuff? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, from Jajage, which is Montreal. It's a river island. Yeah, and it's in the archipelago, the Hoshalaga archipelago. So I kind of grew up on an island. My family's from the Caribbean, so also from an island. So islands are an important geography to me. So yeah, I basically went to McGill and did international development. That's more my educational background. I can hop into that. And I really found an interest in climate change and kind of understanding the situation around small island developing states. And so yeah, my my research was focused on that. And then I always knew I wanted to go into planning so I pivoted and did a master's in Europe and in Europe they kind of practice spatial planning which is kind of more holistic um we're slowly kind of creeping into that here in North America but in North America it's more so urban planning um so that's kind of my educational background and from then I specialized in marine spatial planning which is how I kind of swung into ocean conservation and yeah education with OceanWise. I just kind of wanted to ask as well what has been your inspiration to shape your career around these environmental issues? Wow there's so many I think because after I graduated from my planning master's I really kind of wanted to do that with my international development. So I kind of want to pair the two. So I traveled around and was able to work on different local community projects. And I think that that's where I drew a lot of inspiration for the work I'm doing now. The ones that just like really inspired me were I worked on this project in Mauritius and it was in this beach town called my book and then we worked with this woman named Estelle and she she was working on this project 80 hours a week but she really 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 was attached to having the community be the stewards of the project so I think like within a year she had 
maybe over 70 meetings with the fishermen, like they were involved in every element of the project. The, the project that she was working on, it was called Le Barachois Project. And so although colonial, they were kind of reintroducing the colonial way of doing aquaculture. So they built they build a wall in the lagoon and then they kind of um, have crab traps and they're able to, to do that mariculture that way. And so, but first the lagoon needed to be rehabilitated. So it was a lot of like community cleanups and it was just a really, really enjoyable way of working. So that's something that I've taken with me and that it's just more fun to like, <laughs> to do work like with the people that are directly involved and can directly, um, are directly affected by the change. And then I worked on a different project in um, Cambodia that it's not something that I would have ever have thought I would be involved in, but I was um, a research assistant for fishing cat research in this mangrove area. And the researcher was kind of looking at the interaction between humans and fishing cats, but it was, that was like one of the pillars of the research, but she appended another pillar, which was also livelihood improvement. And so thinking about not just having one initiative, but how, like, if you have an interest on like fishing cat conservation, that's very noble, that's amazing, but also thinking about the community that lives with the fishing cats, like how can this research also, um, kind of address them, you know, in an inclusive way. So thinking about things in a holistic and inclusive way was something that I picked up from there. And that's something that I try to integrate into my work and yeah. What you were talking about, I found really interesting working on projects, you know, in different places around the world. Um, earlier, you talked a bit about like the culture around environmentalism and the importance to put around water and stuff like that. Was there any big differences you noticed around that culture towards water when you're working on projects in those other places? Or what did you find it kind of similar to working in Montreal? That's a great question. I'm going to be thinking about this for a couple months, Alex. Something that I've really been thinking deeply about is like when I was in the Caribbean, I, I worked a bit in Barbados. Like the fact that the people of the islands there aren't, aren't necessarily, don't swim don't have the swimming culture that we do in Canada is very interesting to me and I watched a, a series that you can find on CBC Gem called Enslaved um, that was kind of looking at the transatlantic slave trade and unearthing different different like research that has not really been discussed widely and I learned a lot through that but <laughs> I just yeah, I just think that for me, the contrast between like Caribbean nations versus Canada, like that was the biggest contrast that I seen in my travels, let's say. And it just made me very sad <laughs> because like when something I learned from the, the, the documentary is that water is very scary for, for people who are descendant of enslaved people because when you got on the boat, you knew you were either going to die or like, you didn't actually know, like you knew that you were leaving your home. So it's, I think that the accessibility of swimming is probably a legacy of that. Um, but yeah, it's really, really interesting. And there's, they're doing, that project is really amazing. And I really recommend anyone to watch that documentary. But yeah, I just think that it's socioeconomic as well, swimming culture. 
which is very interesting to me. I've noticed a very deep relationship with um, even here. That's why, like with Audacity Swim, even though I am kind of trying to use backyard pools, I recognize that someone to have a backyard pool, you have to, it's a station of privilege, right? So I am thinking about that very circular, in a circular way. And I do want to eventually have like a matching program where like um, children from under-resourced neighborhoods come to the backyard lesson and they're able to take the out of the pool component together. And it's a way to foster friendship, which I think, is a big determinant in, um, yeah, in socioeconomic, um, I don't have the right word for this, advancement. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that that's like, and also friendship is just um, something that I think is a little bit difficult to come by maybe in post-COVID as well. I think that there's um, scope for that. That made me think too that around the world, there'd be different reliances on water and because of the socioeconomic status of a certain country or community, that would also, I feel like, maybe um, create a different relationship with the water in terms of dependability on the resources that it provides and that kind of thing. Yeah, but even so, like in places that I've been, like even just think about surf culture, right? Surf culture, like all those elite sports. Even I went snowboarding the other day. It's You don't see very many. It's very homogeneous in certain places right so it's just thinking about why why you know like why are all the surfers white you know like or the majority of the surfers white when there's a lot you know all types of people I think that yeah even within swimming you know you see those things but yeah there's different uh yeah, reasons and barriers. And I think there's there's so much to pick away at. That's why I think Odessite, there's just so much to cover. I'll never be bored. <laughs> I'm just always curious with going around the world and working with water, how people, you know, are working with it. But with spatial planning in an urban space, especially with blue spaces, that kind of thing, when you started all of this or just started looking into it, what was or what is the state of that in Canada at the moment? Is there other organizations or people that are making this a priority? Um, have you worked with other people that want to make this a priority? I first had the like idea of it in 2018 and I did like a, a focus group kind of and I just wanted to ask the question like what is blue public space? If I just say what is blue public space what comes to mind and I got a patchwork of different responses but one that really stood out to me was someone said it could be like it's possible to activate like to use that space for carbon capture which is something I had never thought about so when I speak about blue public space it's something that I don't really have a strong definition for it's something that I'm examining it more experientially I'm uh, really kind of looking at the history also of the land the island here in Montreal and that's been really informative because Montreal is a wetland we pretend that it's not but that those characteristics of the landscape inevitably don't disappear right so the flooding that we're experiencing in more recent times I think is linking back to the fact that we don't respect the integrity of the land that we have to work with so <laughs> In, I guess, 2020, it was perfect timing with the pandemic. I mean, if you could say such a thing, um, I was able to do a fellowship where I was studying like the scope of localizing SDG 11.7. So SDG 11 is kind of the urban planning um, sustainable development goal. 
And the SDG 11.7 looks at uh, delivering equitable, accessible, all these different kind of qualifiers. But it's focused on green space. So I just kind of looked, used that, but turned it, on, turned it on its head and looked at blue space. So through that kind of, I guess it was a year, year long process of doing the research and stuff like that. I realized that it's really relevant in Montreal for several reasons. Um, one of the first reasons is Montreal has a flooding problem in more recent times. So if the city is able to think about blue public space and, and is able to kind of claw that land back in some capacity, it can be integrated into a flood management plan. Um, also, uh, the mayor is interested in creating one of the largest integrated parks um, in North America. So there's a scope to look at, okay, if we're trying to design this green space, what can we do in terms of the blue space, right? So um, that's something I was looking at. I think also there's, especially Montreal, because we're a UNESCO city of design, uh, Montreal has kind of a mission or an agenda to um, promote sustainable development through design innovation. So for me, it's a really interesting way to kind of address that point on the agenda, right, is to who is really designing for blue public space. I'm seeing projects pop up here and there. There's really interesting projects, uh, a really interesting project in uh, New York City. Um, there's projects in Germany, they're doing river restoration, but blue public space um, as a concept is newer, I would say. <laughs> That's the state. And I don't even, every time I ask someone what is blue public space, I get a different answer. You know, like Cheryl, what for you is blue public space? I was going to say the people that you had in your focus group sound very intelligent <laughs> because <laughs> I wouldn't have thought to say that it's something that we could use for carbon capture. And I would have honestly thought of like a public swimming pool. That's what I would have thought of. And that's a question that I think I would like to share back with you. Maybe taking a step back, I want to ask, can you explain how you understand nature education to be and, and then move that into what is nature education as it relates to water? Because I think from, from my own personal experience, I am a land mammal and uh, the experience that I've had in nature and I am a nature lover has been on the land or or on the water you know like through paddling and haven't had as much experience in the water with some like through Odyssey so first I'd like your take on what is nature education and then how that relates to nature education in or about water mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not really someone that's very formal in terms of as an educator, I, I collected my educator experience very informally, right? So when I was going to do my undergrad, I was teaching swimming lessons. I love that was obsessed with like, yeah, I just was obsessed with the dynamics and like the impact that you can see. And progress um, with, especially with the younger kids, I, I taught of all ages, but um, yeah, especially with younger kids. And then I taught, I taught um, English online um, to students in China. Um, I've TA'd, so I'm just like, my educator experience is not very formal. Um, so I approach nature education in the same way, in a very informal way. I think that, um, <laughs> I, I, what you said 
like we are land-based mammals is what I always say. I think that as land-based mammals, we're destroying a realm that we do not inhabit. So I, I view swimming and as the basis for nurturing your connection to waterways, because if you can't recreate in water safely, it's not going to be as accessible to you. A sort of side question that I have is when I was researching nature education in general, and as it relates to water, something that I was frequently seeing is children. Um, and that it's kids with a microscope looking at insects or kids in the water learning how to swim, but it seems to always be kids. So is nature education just for kids and where, where do adults fit in there? For me, nature education has to be experiential. Um, I, I think that's the best way to, um, yeah, really learn about something is to do like to learn while doing for me personally, that's my learning style. So that's, I guess, what I enjoy working on. Um, is it just for kids? <laughs> I've really been interested in the concept of waterway heritage. And it's like kind of those intangible elements of tradition and culture that are just passed down. And I think that that's something that I would be interested in exploring in terms of um, intergenerational um, educational opportunities. With Audacity, I focus mostly on um, children. So it's for kids age three to six, just because it is swimming lessons. You can learn to swim at any age. From my experience, it's a little bit more difficult if there is fear. And I usually saw fear with um, adult clients. So, um, and the thing is with adults as well, it's practice, 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 practice. And oftentimes the lifestyle doesn't af afford for that amount of time. So the progress will be a little bit slower. Um, but yeah, all that to say is it's amazing if, if adults want to learn to swim. But I think that there's a specific um, entry point, like um, at between window, sorry, between ages three to six to kind of really endow children with environmental education. So when I was teaching swimming, I taught for a really amazing company. But the thing that I noticed is that it is a little bit arbitrary the way that we do teach. Okay, do your Superman arms is the example that I give, right? Superman is very <laughs> appealing to children, but there's an opportunity to go one step further and really just tie it back to the environment. So in our lessons, we use eel arms, right? So show me your eel arms. And the way that the lessons are designed is there's an out of the pool component, but also an in the pool component. And in the out of the pool component, the kids are doing experiments, doing sing-alongs, really kind of taking in the lesson so I'll give the example of the first lesson, which is ice and icebergs. So as I explained, there's sing-alongs, different experiments. They, they learn about the different formats of water, you know, obviously tailored to three to six-year-olds. And then when we are in the pool, everything is, is applied as well. So we have an exercise, let's say, that goes, okay, we're going to be an iceberg. Show me, put most of your, your body underwater. I just want to see your head type of thing so it's just reinforced within um, the pool obviously once they go on and do other lessons beyond audacity um 
they'll be subjected to different styles of swimming. But I think it's really interesting to, um, yeah, marry the two, like environmental education and swimming lessons. And in Quebec, we have an opportunity because uh, we have a lot of um, pools here. We, and actually, Canada has a really strong swimming culture overall, I would say. Um, but Montreal especially, um, Quebec has the most backyard pools out of anywhere in North America per capita, which is very amazing because we only have like six months of summer. No, sorry, less than six months. We have like four months of summer. Um, so there's an opportunity to deliver these lessons in children's backyards as well. But my dream would be to do them in the river. You know, we're talking a lot about swimming, making that initial connection to water. And you talked about having that, that you know, magical window between the ages of three and six. What to you is the benefit of creating that nature or that connection to water, connection to nature at that early age? How do you see that benefit play out for those people later on or throughout their life? It endows them with the, the skill, right? So if, if kids can swim, then they can go boating, they can go paddling, they can go surfing, they can, you know, be on the coast with less fear. Um, so yeah, I think that there is a, I think it is important to really try to prioritize if, it, if it's possible, right, between those ages. Um, and under 10, you can, I think under 10, you will get a good result or a swifter result to get the skill of swimming. I think for me, safety is really important. And that's my wish really with these lessons. Yeah, and the way that we teach the lessons, if we make it fun, if we make it engaging, it's something that is enjoyable. So it, the waterway can be a space of recreations, recreation for them, water in general, blue spaces we can say. Um, so I think that it will naturally just nurture that connection um, yeah, if you have the basis of Stacey and if you have like a good experience um, first being immersed, let's say. Yeah, and I was, I was curious your take because I think we all know people who are maybe don't know how to swim or, or I know people definitely that are my age who don't know how to swim, didn't learn, didn't get that connection and that has definitely negatively affected their connection to nature, at least in BC, where I'm based, because so much of it is coastline, water-based, boat travel access. Um, so yeah, I've definitely noticed that as you were talking about it. It seems like getting kids excited about water and um, getting comfortable in water seems like it could also inadvertently, and through the way that you uh, present your lessons, it could inadvertently have those kids become much more protective of the environment and and think about environmental sustainability a bit more without even necessarily doing it on purpose like if I if I liked to swim in the river or if I liked to paddleboard in the river and then something happened to the river I think my recreation space is gone um so it could it, it seems like a cool different channel to um bring people on board in in terms of environmental sustainability. Yeah, yeah. I think that I agree with everything you said, but Alex, it's never too late. <laughs> I specifically haven't um, expanded my programming yet um, to include adults, but one day I would love to. I think also something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, yes, water is 
important, but we are in Canada and we are under snow for much of the year, right? So winter cities, in my opinion, are also water cities. So I want to also explore like, what does that look like? It, like kind of engaging with that format of water, let's say, or what recreation opportunities are like thinking about like swimming and what that unlocks and in the snow kind of context. Something that I appreciate about um, what you've been sharing in your answers and something that I hope that listeners of the podcast get out of the podcast too is, is hearing the different backgrounds of people and seeing how different people use their different experiences to end up where they are. So I like hearing about your experiences in education and how you've sort of pulled together different experiences to lead you to creating Odessite. Can I hear a bit more about how you decided to move forward on the idea and then how you brought the idea to life and what that whole process was like? I think it was yeah, maybe last year, because I had done the fellowship and I had created a proposal for defining, designing and delivering blue public space for the island of Montreal. And I submitted it to the city's participatory budget. So I was thinking, oh, you know, like there's not really. I mean, there are firms that think about water, but I don't really see anyone like thinking about like that human kind of connection in the way that I really emphasize it. So I was like of two minds, do I go and do take this proposal and this research that I've done and do a PhD or do I take the entrepreneurship route? And then through some conversations with people that, um, you know, are where I wanted to kind of go, I decided that it was possible that I could um, create my own initiative. And that's where I just kind of mobilized for it. But I would say that what allowed me to have the foundation to be able to do this is my work with the Emerging Markets Project, which also relates to education, not necessarily environmental education, but more so experiential business education. So I was collaborating with Chris, who's the founder of Emerging Markets Project, and um, we did an accelerator program and I was so nervous. I said, Chris, I'm a planner. I do international development. I don't know anything about business. Like I'm just freaking out. And, and but he, he has a business background and he's like, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to do it together. And then so going through that program, I learned so much. Wow. And it was a lot of work and we, yeah, we did a lot of, we had a lot of positive outcome from that, but, um, I realized that business boils down to human connection. And I think that it's like this big, scary monster, like entrepreneurship, it's, it's made out to be for, I think there's an allure for several reasons, but I just kind of forged ahead and I'm going to learn as I, as I do it experientially, I guess, which is the way I like to do things. Um, but I am interested in a like I do have a circular economy model kind of applied to it. It's just finding the time to move into operations, right? So I did do a pilot season of swimming lessons last year um, with one family. But moving forward to scale, I need 
resources, unfortunately, is the thing that's kind of keeping me in this phase. But yeah, not for long, I don't think. <laughs> so you mentioned the, the pilot season with the family. Have there been other activities so far or what do you, how do you hope to grow it in the future? Ooh, I'm going to focus on really taking that pilot season and reworking the curriculum with my collaborators. So I'm collaborating with um, my friend from high school who's also, she has a background in education. And uh, so we're gonna rework a few things and then I'm gonna see where I go from there. But I'm really interested also in the opportunities for toolkits and a model where I'm not necessarily delivering the lessons, um, but it more so operates under licensing. Um, So it's more accessible to, the program can be more accessible to people nationwide, hopefully is is my, yeah, hopefully nationwide, but I'm gonna start here in Montreal. Yeah, we'll see where we go. What is one piece of advice that you have, Cyrielle, for people trying to get involved in environmentalism? I would say, (laughs) do what you're already doing, but then apply like an environmental lens to it. Um, I think oftentimes people don't know where to start, but what I find to be the most interesting initiatives that I've seen, and also some, not necessarily always, but sometimes the, the more impactful ones are where people, you know, just, think about applying something that they've learned about the environment to their and bringing it back to their own community. So I think places of worship, um, I've seen projects that like where people do workshops in their places of worship, which is not a really, yeah, popular way of doing environmental education or outreach, but also an important avenue. Don't try and reinvent the wheel, just because then that's when we get a lot of replication a lot of replication that's what I see a lot of which is not it's fine it's good that everyone's doing their thing um but I think we're at a point where we need a lot more innovation so (laughs) if you can just kind of do what you're doing but then just think about like applying like something else to the mix I think that's great advice because then it makes it really feasible for anybody doing any kind of work to get involved in environmental work. And we will need for a sustainable future, basically everybody involved in every kind of work to get involved in a sustainable future. To close out, for other people who might want to talk to you a bit more, how can they connect with you? I like have an Instagram, Audacity, if you want to check it out. Yeah, find me on LinkedIn, Serian Noel. I'm I'm happy to correspond via LinkedIn and then move over to email. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for being here. I I really enjoyed it too. All right. Bye, friends. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of One Act at a Time, Stories of Change. We would love to hear your thoughts on Instagram or Facebook at Take the Oath. And to learn more about the Oath Project or to nominate someone for this podcast, visit oneactatatime.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe and share it with your community so that we can inspire more people to hashtag Take the Oath. That's it from us, and we will see you on the next episode.